Hello, and welcome to Book City Roanoke. I'm Douglas Jackson, and this is Episode 7. We're talking about the next chapter, books, writing, and the personal renaissance. My guest today is Napoleon Jones Henderson. He's an artist and a reader, and he received the commission to produce art in front of the Melrose Library. Rhapsody in Knowledge is the piece, and it's been dedicated And we took some time before he flew back to Massachusetts to talk a little bit about the Black Arts Movement, which he's been instrumental in, and what libraries and books mean to him. A couple of items before we get started. First, we have a sponsor for this, and that is Book No Further, Roanoke's independent bookstore down on the historic city market. And I'll remind you that our things literary are at bookcityroanoke.com. And with that, I want to dive right into it. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Today is uh, January 17th, and we just had the dedication for the art. And tell me a little bit what that was like. Uh, it, was, it was elevating. Elevating in the sense that um, it was one of the, uh, I would say it's a highlight of 2020, because we've just gotten into 2020, and this was uh, the collaboration between myself, the community, the Arts Council, and especially all the children at the two schools, the high school and the grammar school that I came here in January of last year and did a workshop with, which I was very, very, very pleased that they were able to be here today for the unveiling because they actually did the cutting of uh, the ropes holding the tarps over each of the three elements in the uh, Three three piece series uh, known as uh, Rhapsody and Knowledge, and uh, it was uh, it's well I guess you can tell by my stuttering it's it's uh, I'm, I'm a little short on words, but I would say that it was just simply extraordinary. Yeah, T- tell me a little bit about <coughs> Rhapsody and Knowledge. So that was three pieces, and it was enamel on steel. And what do they portray? Well, they portray the possibilities of young people growing up, older people taking advantage fully of what is available within the confines of a building known as a library. And really, that's just really a small condensation of the larger library, which is actually the community. Because the people who live in the community, they are nothing more than books. There was a film, which I can't remember the name of. I think it was Fahrenheit 360-something or another, whatever the exact temperature. 451 where you had this uh, sort of runaway, renegade tribe of people who were living out in the woods because books were banned, and each person became an individual book. They knew the book, the author, the history of the author, and all that because they were looking forward to when life came back to some sensible state of being. These books would be available because the society at the time were burning all the books. And so, in a way of speaking... The artwork, uh, the message of the Rhapsody and Knowledge is that if one makes full use of the resources of the library, that is, that which lie between the book covers, that it is an opening to, it is their passport to a life that will be richer than anything they could have imagined without having experienced those books. And the three pieces outside speak to that in visual terms. Uh, in the sense that if they were to look at the one that's aspiration, the one that's uh, us walking forward to uh, the particular correct titles, because I'm still in the elevation of this uh, <laughs> opening, uh, this is an encouragement for everyone to go to the library 
and you'll pick up a little brochure and give you the full uh, uh, information. But again, you have the visual language on the outside in terms of the sculpture, and you have the literary language inside of the library. So it's really a collaboration between the visual and the written in terms of my inspiration and my desire about what the pieces that I created in collaboration with the community was uh, a a rhapsody. It was a uh, an orchestrated embellishment of a life experience, intellectual experience, spiritual and communal experience in the sense that not only is the library a place for p- people to come and deal with the literary and the educational aspect of, of a library, but it has a community space, it has arts and crafts and design, and it becomes a center by which all of those different entities, visual and literary, uh, merge together. And by extension, everyone becomes a richer individual as a result of that. You know, And I was very, very honored to be able to have a role uh, from as far away as I am in, 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 in Boston, Roxbury, Massachusetts, to be here in Roanoke uh, with the community and feel so at home because I have surely been welcomed here and I feel, I feel very much at home. Oh, it was clear how much the um, students, the neighbors in the community, how much they uh, enjoyed spending time with you. They were really looking forward to you coming back. Um, yeah, they were interested in seeing the art, but it was really, they wanted to spend more time with you. <laughs> we really appreciate all the time that you've spent in the community. Let me ask you about uh, your growing up in libraries, um, the way you described the library and the, the role it plays in the community is powerful. How, well, what was you know, your introduction to a library? You know, the interesting part, and I really hadn't thought about it, you know, consciously on the front lobe until your statement just now, is that uh, I'm the oldest of 13, and uh, the first four were boys. And, of course, the oldest child, and anyone listening to this knows what the oldest child has to do. You have to raise the others. And uh, we would, after school, I would be responsible for taking the other three. And we went down to a library right in our neighborhood called the Hall Branch Library, which Hall was himself a very important African-American scholar. The library was named for him. It's a very small, little, quaint little library. And it was built back in the 1940s, 1930s, rather, when libraries were in every community all around the country. And they were very uh, important elements of the social fabric of communities because they had little stages and things of that nature. So all that sort of stuff happened. But really, we would go to the library, and that was a little, little very unimpressive kind of woman who used to come and read poetry to us all the time. And every day after school, myself and all the other children in the community would go, and uh, this lady would read poetry, which... I didn't remember until uh, early the early 90s. It came back to me through a conversation. It was Gwendolyn Brooks, Chicago's poet laureate, who wow. used to sit and read poetry wow. to us. And she was just another little old lady <laughs> in the neighborhood. And subsequently, in growing up in Chicago, I did in my early adult years, got to know her personally in terms of the black arts movement, in terms of the music, the literature, the visual arts, the dance, and all of that, because Chicago was a very uh, energetic space within the 60s and 70s of the black arts movement as a whole. 
and of course the outgrowth of that being the AACM, which is the Association for the uh, Advancement of Creative Musicians, and Afri-Cobra, the group that I belong to, a visual artist, the African Commune of Bad Relevant Artists, which we are now 52 years going. But I last saw Gwendolyn Books when she came to do a reading in Boston at, at Harvard University, and I came up and I, I reminded her, I said, you know, Miss Brooks, I said, <laughs> very interestingly, I just remembered who you really are. You were the lady who used to read poetry to me and my other little three nappy head little brothers. And every day after, she said, yes, I used to come over to the Hall Branch and read books all the time to the children, her poems and other people's poems. And, of course, Richard Raiden, County Cullens, and all these people travel through there along with people like Elizabeth Catlett and, of course, Margaret Goss Burroughs, who started the DuSable Museum. These were the people I grew up around, and those were the experiences that were just my everyday experience to... I guess it just became a part of my DNA in an unconscious way that it was a part of what drives me forward. Until this particular uh, commission came forward, it really gave me the opportunity to sort of, in a way, honor what I had grown up with uh, as being a part of making this available for young kids like I had. Wow. That is that is powerful. Um, and I'm so impressed in Roanoke, the... The, the library staff, um, oh, yeah. the work that happens, uh, it really, each branch really is a community center and we've got some terrific neighborhood libraries and the community has, um, they made the decision a few years ago, no, we don't want to build a Taj Mahal branch. Right. We want to invest in the neighborhood branches. And that Melrose branch is just a gem. It's a stellar institution, uh, and I say institution because it's not simply a branch of the overall library. It is an institution within the community, and the people. And just this morning, on my way out, when I was going home to, to change after we finished cleaning up the sculptures before unveiling, uh, I was walking out and I asked uh, Amanda. I said, "Oh, these uh, are these uh, croissants and, and and pastries here for uh, the event this afternoon." She said, "Oh no, that's here every day." I said, oh, well, I think I'm going to move to Roanoke. I can bring my coffee, come over here to the <laughs> Melrose Library and have me a croissant with my coffee every day. So it really is a, a, a lot more than just simply a library. It's a, it's the hub of the community. And I actually saw for these two days of the installation, we saw people just coming in and out of all stripes. Some who just simply came to the library because it was there. And they came and met and talked with other people. They didn't come to deal with books. And then I just saw today a young man that was there playing some kind of video game uh, just coming in for a moment. So it's it's really a very special place. At least I know it is for me because of the way I was welcomed in and embraced by the larger community at the inception of the building before they even had broken ground. And so I surely have been blessed and been able to have been able to hold on to that spirit of the community in my first encounter with them and at the larger meeting and then the two days the two classes I spent the second day in the high school and grammar school that really became the um, ethos of the piece you know uh, it I had a general concept on the front end but once becoming involved with the community it began to take on something a whole lot more personal, you know, more than just, it wasn't just a public art commission. And as I said uh, this afternoon, it was a long journey, but it was a very short trip. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I want to go a little bit deeper in the in 
to the the book that you gave the oh. library today. But before I do, let me I'll just remind uh, folks that I'm Douglas Jackson. Uh, you're in Book City, Roanoke, and I'm here with Napoleon Jones Henderson, uh, a well-known, respected artist. Um, out of Roxbury, Boston, Massachusetts. And we have a sponsor for Book City Roanoke, and that's Book No Further down on Roanoke's historic city market. Uh, visit Dolores Vest, and she'll give you a discount on your book club books if you order a certain number. Uh, and you can always stop in and have a really good conversation with her as well. But uh, let's hear about, about that book. Now, that was okay. from the... That was the uh, catalog entitled Respect, which was the name of the, the title of the exhibition. That was uh, held in uh, at the Mosaic Cultural uh, Center in Little Rock, Arkansas, last year uh, in 2018, not 20, 2018, which marked the 50th anniversary of Africobra. And it primarily is a catalog resume of the 50-year journey of Africobra as a group of a collective of working artists. And most of us have taught at various colleges and universities all around the country, uh, very particularly, a number of them were HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, of which the uh, principal uh, initiator of the Africobra group, Jeff Donaldson, Dr. Jeff Donaldson, uh, who was in Chicago doing his Ph.D. at Northwestern University in the 1960s, mid-60s, and we all met as practicing artists, and we were considering what it is that the African-American artists could contribute to the civil rights movement because marching and various other sort of activities, which were the general uh, landscape of civil rights movement, was not feeding. We could not do that and do the work. So we wanted to know what it was we might be able to do, and we thought that what we would be able to best do would be to present uh, what we call positive imagery of African peoples worldwide, not just simply in the United States. And so we set about uh, having a series of meetings, a group of artists, and uh, we discussed the various elements that we thought would be significant and were uh, ever present within the framework of the aesthetic sense of African people. And so uh, as a result, we established a set of uh, aesthetic principles that uh, underpinned the work. And we had a philosophy which held us together as the reason for us being a collective of uh, bad, relevant artists. And I say bad before the Jackson Fives had bad as a musical note. So uh, the book really is a historical document of 50 years of the group. And we started out as 10. And the first exhibition we had outside of Chicago was in New York City at the, which was the second year, I believe, of the Studio Museum in Harlem. Ed Spriggs was the director, and he invited us from a conference we had in Chicago that Jeff Donaldson convened called Confaba to talk about the uh, place of art within the um, uh, uh, landscape of American art as a whole, African art and African-American art. And... Uh, we had our first exhibition there, and we were just 10 artists, and we've never been more than 10 as a group because it takes a little uh, straightening of the back to stand up and be engaged with people who you, one, respect and who you know respect you. And we always we met at least twice a month, and we would come with work in progress. And a part of the, the manifesto of Africobra is that we work collectively. It's what we call ourselves a collective. 
We bring work in progress. We talk with each other about the work. We have critiques. We spend the entire day together. So our families grew up together. We uh, spent this energy and time together. And as a result, all of us grew. And it was a critique that was not in the traditional criticism that art schools primarily deal in, which is telling you what you what's not good and so forth, and a negative growth. Ours was about being positive, is that we pointed out where things might not have been as sharp as we, the viewer, were looking at it and ask you and place it upon you to try to see it from the other direction and, and to assist you in moving that work to the place where you wanted it to be. Because all artists start out with the place they want their work to go, whether they're in writing or visual arts or dance or whatever it is. And only through the interaction and relationship with others does that work actually grow and manifest to be what it is you actually want to happen in the end. It's, no artists exist on their own. We are an amalgam of all the things we experience around us. And so we all became pretty much the amalgam of each other. And to this day, uh, still, I've been, you know, there are several of the members of the group who are of the original 10. We've been friends and associates for 50 years. I mean, you know, when I heard, when I was a kid and heard people talking about, I've been knowing so-and-so for 50 years, I said, damn, how old are you? You know, and I'm now at that point, how old are you? And so uh, that book is the culmination of the 50-year journey that uh, the Masonic uh, Mosaic Cultural uh, Center chose to uh, do for us because Jeff was from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Kevin Cole, who was one of our members, is also from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And so it was appropriate, they felt, to give that honor to someone, a native son, so to speak, uh, for establishing something which is such a hallmark artistic tradition within the American landscape of art. You know, so uh, that's what that book represents. Wow. And I gave a copy to the library because, uh, for me, uh, it's, it's, it's the extension of the work that's on the outside because the work from the outside is nothing more than an uh, amalgamation of all the work and experience I've spent 50 years with these other nine people. And so that's just the other part of the... The sculpture. Wow, I want to dig into that a, a little bit. Um, just the the collective work of that group. Um, first, uh, building a manifesto and deciding how you want to work together, and then testing it and seeing what works and growing together. What was that process like? Well, it was like a family actually, because uh, if you and I use wrong in a very, with quotations around it, if you're going in the wrong direction, somebody's going to pull your coat. You know, and that's an old pejorative statement in the black community, you know, at least from my age group, they say, let me pull your coat to something, you know. And that means they want to bring you in and tell you about something that's beneficial to you. Mm-hmm. So in a way, you know, you grab somebody's coattail and say, let me, let me correct you, or stopping you from going into something that may not be the best for you. Mm-hmm. You know, and so... Um, that was uh, it was it was like family and it, what it is, which is why the title of the the exhibition was called Respect, because we would not have been a group for this long, or any sh- amount of time unless there was some respect for one to the other, and uh, our children have grown up together, you know, in terms of coming to meetings and various other kinds of activities, and so it's really, it's a family. It's n- it's not re- we don't see ourselves necessarily as an artist collective in the sense 
other than the fact that we are an, uh, a family. We are a group of individuals who respect each other as individuals and furthermore overly respect each other for the contributions we make aesthetically and culturally with our visual imagery. Mm-hmm. And as we say in Africa, where we're about the business of creating what we call visual music because music is very much a part of the work as well as when we say positive images, we were not just simply talking about the visual portrayal portrayal of the uh, facial or physiognomy of people. We were also talking about the language and the cultural context that we put into these works because we have a thing we call horovacia, which there's no place on the canvas, whether you're a weaver like I am or enamelist or a watercolorist or acrylic painter or sculptor. There's no sur- no part of the surface that's not been treated by some element of color and pigmentation because it's about the full spectrum of that life. And so uh, we also included, as we said, positive images, which were positive statements. We had in our first few years, we would select a theme that everybody in the group would do a work on. One, the first one was nation time. And we all know that from Emory Baraka and various other poets from the 1960s, uh, the black poets out of uh, uh, New York City, and if the call was, it's nation time, and that was what the civil rights movement was about. You take Stokely Carmichael in the whole nine yards, it's about black power, it was nation time. And the the Democratic Republic, uh, Democratic uh, uh, Party uh, in New York, in Mississippi, was Mississippi County, uh, in uh, Lyons County, was called the Black Panther Party, and that was before the Black Panthers became the Black Panthers. And so all of these sort of things, what you saw in the visual graphics of the Black Panther and the Muhammad Speaks newspapers were the kinds of the the language that the people were using. We would put them and pregnate them in our works, and the compositions were arranged and themed around that. So we had Nation Time, we had Black black Men, uh, Respect Your Woman, we had The Family, we had uh, the uh, Trans-Africa aspect of it because we began to do works that spoke about issues that were uh, a part of the, as we call it, the black world, which was the new name for the Negro Digest, which was a small magazine published among the three magazines by Ebony Publishing Company. It was first called Negro Digest, and when Hoyt Fuller, who is an extraordinary gifted writer and poet, uh, became the editor in the late 60s, he changed the name from Negro Digest to Black World. And that was an all-encompassing element of really an outgrowth of the Civil Rights Movement because it was about the Black World. And when you think about that period of time, that was the time that the colonial yokes were being thrown off by non-European peoples all across the planet. And we had this interaction and interface with each other through our travels. Like I said, the book of uh, James Baldwin's when I was able to go to Europe to study in 1970, the book I took with me was uh, Another Country, and that was his book. Mm-hmm. And it's the uh, abiding theme, underlying theme for this com- uh, com- uh, uh, um, this commission that, you know, the, the, the object itself is really not the important element is the spirit of that which is most important because if you understand and are able to embrace the spirit of the work, then you have reached a particular point that the work itself is nothing but a vessel to bring you to the spirit. Mm -hmm. And that book was a book that really settled me into being able to enjoy uh, 
my time there in France in school. And it also introduced me to a lot of other Africans, which would be then called similarly as we were as blacks from the U.S., expatriates. Mm-hmm. And these were the younger artists at the time and intellectuals of Senegal and uh, Tanzania and Uganda and uh, Togo and Nigeria and all these countries who were getting their, gaining their independence. And uh, little did I know that these were my contemporaries on a world stage. And the 60s and 70s was an extraordinary period of time in the arc of human civilization because of so much that occurred uh, across the world during that period of time that uh, I'm just blessed to have been born when I was born and been able to be a part of that because to grow up with people who were just my everyday people I meet, like Gwendolyn Brooks, Margaret Burroughs, Elizabeth Catlett, Charles White, I mean, these are just folks I would be, like you and I sitting here talking, I'd see them at different uh, situations, which was the National Conference of Black Artists, that a group of uh, uh, adult black artists who could only get jobs teaching their art skills and uh, to other black students in historically black colleges because they couldn't get, they wouldn't be hired at uh, regular white institutions. But they came together as a group and met every year at a different black college, and each of the particular individuals brought students with them. So I was carried there by Margaret Burroughs from Chicago. So we would be charged with sitting, finding, this was Margaret's thing. She said, you are going to find, I'm giving you to him, I'm giving you to her, I'm giving you, and you have to spend your time doing this three-day conference with that person. So we get to sit with somebody like Charles White and have him talk to me just generally about how you do a drawing. I remember, and he said, well, if you're going to do a drawing of this fan in the ceiling, which is yours right here, he said, where would you start? And you start talking about, well, I do the the, 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 the blades or the bulb, and those so forth, and everybody was, you know, all the different students giving their thoughts. He said, no, you start with the ceiling. Mm-hmm. The fan is attached to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. A very important point, which we hadn't gotten in the art schools, <laughs> but we got it from the master. Yeah. And it was those, so that's why I say that period of time, the 60s and 70s, was such an extraordinary time because where else now can students sit for three or four days with these masters of the creative world and just be able to talk to them like they talk to their uncles and cousins and mm-hmm. people on the corner, mm-hmm. you know? And so I got to know these people and John Bickers and all these other kind of individuals who were my mentors, but they were just people that I knew. And I could call upon them, or if I'm in the city where they are, I could go by their house and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's it, it was just extraordinary. Yeah. And I'm the person I am because of that. And it starts, again, back the collaboration between literature and visual art. Mm-hmm. With right there with Gwendolyn Brooks and my other three brothers and all the rest of the kids who were sitting there listening to her read poetry. And, and as they say, who knew? <laughs> now, I'm sitting here with a, a world great poet, scholar, activist who just lives in my town and, and just sits at my library and just reads and, to me. And cares enough to engage with young people in that way. And you just you just said, like, well, where can, where can, people today, you know, find experiences, like the kinds of experiences you have. But my um, informed suspicion is that uh, you have 
shared experiences with younger artists uh, and people on their path. Absolutely. What's what, how do you do how do you do that? Well, the genesis of that is from Margaret Burroughs. Margaret Burroughs was a extraordinary artist, an activist, and she was uh, a taskmaster. She would tell you uh, what you are learning doesn't belong to you. You're being given this by these individuals, and it's your responsibility to pass it on. And so <clears throat> that kind of uh, underpinning is just a part of the fabric of who I am as a person. And so I've always enjoyed, and I've spent my entire career teaching uh, at some college or university or just generally in my studio or in processes similar to what I've been doing with the community here in Melrose through community workshops. And I used to have a big 5,000 square foot studio in Chicago, myself and five other artists. And uh, we used to have classes there all the time. I mean, the place was virtually an art school of its own because I was a weaver. Um, Lester was a sculptor. Uh, Arnold Barnes was a painter. Murray the Pillars was a painter and an academic scholar. Uh, Robert was also a, a fabric manipulator of sorts. And we had uh, Baba Tunde, who was a jeweler. And so we had this space that everybody always came to, like people come to the uh, Melrose Library. We had all these activities going on. So uh, passing it on uh, is always been a part of how I uh, engage my studio practice. And the young man who's just here with me, who was brought into my uh, orb through a young lady who worked on worked with me as an apprentice with two other young ladies four years ago on a large commission I did at for the Boston Public School System in Boston. And uh, she's now just an extraordinarily gifted young lady who uh, teaches. She was uh, selected as one of the artists for the 2018 Biennale at the Dakota of a Museum. And serendipitously, I said, oh, guess what? I met the I met the Venice Biennale this year. So I said, how about that? Both of us at the Biennale, you know. Fantastic. And so it's just, you know, I, I, I've had a very, I, I'm having a very rich life. Because yeah. it's not had, it's going on. Yeah. It's continual. Well, I, I just got to meet you this week, uh, and I, I'm looking forward to, to continue to, to uh, track oh. that trajectory, and uh, and I, and maybe there'll be a way to get you back to Roanoke again hey, well, at, at some know, point. All you got to do is just tell me I'm on my way, you know, because <laughs> I keep my passport in my pocket, so if it's Roanoke or if it's overseas, I'm good. I'm ready to go. All and right. uh, again, you know, the I'm a vociferous reader. I've I've got uh, as we indicated uh, was given out today about the institute, the Research Institute for African and African Diaspora Arts, which I started in 1978. And it was really through the instigation of the community because people came to my house. I'm just well, you know, I'm I'm just an engaging person with people. I like people. People seem to like me, and I had this house that I bought when I moved to Boston, and I had all these works of art of mine and the Afrocobra artists and all these other artists that I knew and met through the National Conference of Black Artists and Margaret Burroughs and so forth. And people would come to the house and they'd just see all of this art, and they said, "Man, this is a museum. You need to let other people see this stuff." And I have probably about 6,000 books in the, my library of all kinds of works of art and just one of a kind because I was, Boston was a interesting laboratory for me. I was able to go to secondhand stores and find all kinds of out-of-print first edition books by authors of all stripe 
many autographed and with various statements from people that they wrote to people when they gave them the books. And I just really have a very uh, extraordinary collection of books and art. And I've owned probably about 3,000 works of art from different artists I've collected over the years. So it's just, that's just me. Well, maybe I need to make a trip to Boston rather than come coming on up. back here. That sounds <laughs> well, fascinating. Well, we could do both of those. You can <laughs> come right. up and I can come down. Oh, yeah, we know how that goes. Oh, Terrific. for sure. Yeah. Terrific. Well, I want to. that brings us to the end of our time, and I want to thank you very much for the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Well, equally so. I mean, I was honored to be asked, and I'm pleased to know that it's something I can, an additional something I can leave here in uh, Roanoke than just the catalog and the works at the library. Great. Thank you very much, Napoleon. You too, Douglas. And this is Douglas Jackson. Uh, Thanks for being part of Book City Roanoke. And uh, next week, we will have poet Sandy McGlawn, so look, look for that. Don't forget to look at the session page for each of the podcast sessions. In this one, you'll find images of the Rhapsody in Knowledge dedication and links to authors and books mentioned in the podcast. We want to thank our sponsor, Dolores Best, down at Book No Further, putting ideas in your head since 2017.